Hi. 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 Hello. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious I'm about. Curious about. I'm curious about building open, authentic, loving relationship. I'm curious about jealousy. I'm curious about polyamory. Does it just mean that you're fucking all the time? How can I tell my parents that my partner is already married? I'm curious about... How do you know when you're too busy to have another relationship? I'm curious about dominant and subordinate relationships. I'm curious about sexual health. How can relationships can evolve with people evolve as they grow and change? You know, if you understand what their background or what they're going through, it becomes understandable. It's, it's, all, it's their way of trying to exist in, in, in a world that's very confusing. Welcome to the Curious Fox podcast. For those challenging the status quo in love, sex, and relationships, my name is Effie Blue. And I'm Jacqueline Misla. And today we're talking about borderline personality disorder or BBT and the ways in which this condition impacts individuals and relationships. On this podcast, we've taken deep dives into conversations about mental health, trauma and attachment because these have direct impact on our relationship with ourselves and others. With so many labels and diagnoses pointing apparently in different directions, but sounding very similar when you take a closer look at them. We are curious to explore the Venn diagram between these conditions, such as ADHD, anxiety, bipolar, depression, disorganized attachment, narcissism, and so on, and their impact on our connections. Today, we wanted to understand borderline personality disorder, so we reached out to the person who wrote one of the best-selling books on the subject. I am Gerald Kreisman. I'm a psychiatrist in St. Louis. I've had particular interest in a number of areas, particularly in personality disorders, especially borderline personality disorder, where I've written a number of books and articles. When we think about BPD, we likely think about instability, unstable moods, unstable emotions, unstable behaviors, but there are actually nine traits that characterize BPD. Fear of abandonment, unstable relationships, unclear or shifting self-image, impulsive and self-destructive behaviors, self-harm, extreme emotional swings, chronic feelings of emptiness, and explosive anger. As you can imagine, this difficult and destructive tornado of emotions, perceptions, and behaviors have a significant impact on the familial and romantic relationships. In our conversation with Dr. Kreisman, we wanted to understand more about the disorder the effect it has on relationships, and the way in which individuals and the people who love them can seek help. Dr. Kreisman is a board-certified psychiatrist, an associate clinical professor at St. Louis University, and has been designated a Distinguished Life Fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. He is the author of I Hate You, Don't Leave Me, Understanding the Borderline Personality, Sometimes I Act Crazy, Living with Borderline Personality Disorder, and Talking to a Loved One with Borderline Personality Disorder. We started our conversation with Dr. Kreisman by asking what exactly is borderline personality disorder and what causes it. Borderline personality disorder is one of the 10 defined personality disorders that are, is accepted in the DSM. That's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that is mostly accepted in this country and uh, variations around the world. And it's a disorder that is characterized by significant mood changes that are environmentally induced, impulsivity, tremendous struggles with relationships. The impulsivity is usually destructive. 
the there's a concerns about abandonment like all of the really most medical disorders altogether it's defined by a number of criteria in the situation of borderline personality there are nine defining criteria and in order to endorse that as a diagnosis one has to have five or more of those defining characteristics and they include the things that i've mentioned particularly the difficulties with with moods and impulsiveness anger relationship issues self-destructive behaviors uh, and sometimes suicidal feelings in particular it's it's characterized by a tendency to undergo what's called splitting person with bpd's tends to see the world in extremes of black or white right or wrong good or bad one or the other such that a person is wonderful and is loved beyond reason but maybe reviled without any limits with in the next minute depending on on how they're affected and then do we know what causes it it appears to be a combination of nurture nature uh, we do know there are some genetic predispositions in which a person might be vulnerable many people in fact most people with borderline personality disorder have a history of trauma in childhood or sometimes abuse uh neglect uh sometimes pretty terrible and we also know that in twin studies when you have twins identical twins that are separated at birth there's a higher prevalence to for both to have borderline personality even though they have different environments we also know that first and second degree relatives of people with a diagnosis of BPD have a higher tendency to also have um BPD so it seems there are some genetic connections probably it's a 50-50 kind of thing and then if depending on the exposure in one's environment and what one's background is that may unleash the the characteristics And are the characteristics kind of what age is kind of onset like what at what age are you seeing the these characteristics or are they sort of later on in life do they show up in specific situations are they triggered by relationships particularly or just going about your day Well usually one begins to observe borderline characteristics in adolescence and in the early 20s There's a difference between normal adolescence and borderline adolescence. I mean, some people would feel right. <laughs> right. I have an 11-year-old and some of what you described <laughs> happens in my household just because of puberty. Yeah. I believe the phrase borderline adolescent may be a redundancy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. sure. um, but there is a difference and the, and the difference is a normal adolescent gets mad, yells at his parents and slams the door. a borderline adolescent pulls the plugs out of the wall throws dishes in the kitchen storms out of the room and goes find some drugs one of the other characteristics of course that comes up is they have a facility to be almost chameleon like because part of the problem with with this and this is a part of the problems in adolescence and early growth is developing a sense of identity and for some of the bpd there is not an established identity they sort of change depending on where they are and who they're with they're they're a republican when they're with republicans or democrat when they're with the democrats but in, when it's 2:00 in the morning and they're by themselves they're not really sure who they are or what they are it's sort of a become sort of a zealot character 
uh, like from the old Woody Allen uh, mm. film. Mm-hmm. So they develop there. And as time goes on, some of the anger outbursts that are characterized, some of the difficulties establishing identity, some of the difficulties in relationships sometimes mature out. So that over the decades, many people with that diagnosis of BPD that is flagrant at age, say, 20 or 25, by the time it's 35, many of these characteristics have mellowed down. And by the time they're 45 or even 55, they may no longer fulfill that five of the nine criteria. So technically, they would no longer satisfy that diagnosis as they age for many people. Interesting. Why is that the case? I think it's a either a burning out or a maturing kind of thing. People with BPD, when they're young and the impulses are really severe, will do this destructive behavior. Cutting is a common thing you see with people in borderline personality, where they may cut on themselves. And some of that, as they get older, they have a better control of that. They may become disaffected with the tendency to run out and be promiscuous, pick up somebody at a bar, or turn to drugs as they get older, that they may establish themselves in ways that 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 kind of destructiveness becomes less of an issue. And they may start to establish some sense of who they are with a, uh, if they're able to find a job, if they're able to find a reliable partner, and so they can begin to monitor some of these things. And that happens with or even without therapy. You had referenced that there are some things in the environment that can trigger outbursts. Can you talk a little bit more about that? It is usually an interaction with an individual or person. For example, a man may be walking out at the day of work and maybe gets stopped at at the door by his boss who praises him, says he's doing a great job, he's going to give him a promotion and a raise, and he feels wonderfully euphoric. And he walks into the garage, he walks to the garage and he finds he locked his keys in the car. And he starts banging his head against the wall, saying, I'm stupid, I'm hateful, I'm an idiot, I hate myself. It's that those kinds of just different situations can cause an extreme reaction and it can whipsaw from one to the other. And that particularly affects relationships. Um, because of the concerns of the insecurities in about abandonment and relationships, someone with BPD may be constantly testing the relationship, sometimes putting the other person in a sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't mm-hmm. kind of situation. It's a sort of question that one partner may say to the other, something like, uh, which dress makes me look fatter? <laughs> Either way, you're going to get in trouble. And whatever you answer is going to is going to tick off an outburst. If things are going wonderful, it's wonderful. But just one little screw up can kind of just change things. You're going to leave me. You don't love me anymore. This is never going to work. I mean, it's fascinating. The whole structure of it, I find fascinating. And the thing that I'm curious about is, like, for example, with anxiety, or at least the way that I think about sort of personality disorders and, and some of the mental health issues is the kind of, they seem to have a narr- like a background narrative that define them. So for something like anxiety, I feel like it's like the impending sense of doom, like feeling of an impending sense of doom is kind of defines anxiety, right? So I'm curious if there is a, like a, a, a narrative that defines and summarizes the BPD experience. Is it like, I don't know who I am? Like what you mentioned a minute ago about like at 2 a.m. when they're on their own, they don't know who they are. That is a really sad image for me. Like that, that got me. I was like, that, it sounds really painful for the person. And I'm just curious what, if there is like something that defines that, the experience. 
Um, I think when you look at the specific criteria, I haven't really enumerated each one specifically, mm-hmm. but you know, they're, they're out there. One of those criteria is a sense of emptiness, a, a, a boredom. And that goes along with that poor sense of identity. There is a, and, and that in turn connects to that desperate fear of abandonment that my existence exists only in relationship to somebody else. I'm somebody's something. I'm somebody's husband. I'm somebody's employee. I'm somebody's something. And I'm, it's only in, in trying to relate it to something else. So there is, as you said, an anxiety, uh, sort of an existential anxiety of mm. basically the question, basic question of who am I? Mm. And the irony of the fact that there there exists such a focus on relationships and identifying themselves via relationships, but then the behavior that can really damage relationships. And so there's a desperate need for connection, and then there's behavior that damages that connection. Can you talk a little bit about the effect on relationships? You talked about this black and white way of doing things, of seeing things, and also damned if you do, damned if you don't. Are there other ways in which having BPD impacts relationships, either familiar or romantic? What you will hear all the time is everybody's first wife was a borderline. Um, (laughs) And it usually refers to the sense of this first relationship, man or woman, starts off very attractive and um, very appealing and very, very praising. And then the demands come on and the testing comes on. Even though it is felt that genetically and in the general population, the, te- the prevalence of BPD that is thought to be uh, expressed in the world is about 50-50 men or women. But 75% of all people who are diagnosed with BPD are women. So why, now why should that be? Well, I, I think there are a couple of reasons. For, first of all, in general, women have a more demanding role, particularly when it comes to identity in terms of my, am I a mother, am I a worker, am I a spouse? When the school calls because the kids are sick, they call mom more than they call dad. And so the whole issues are more. Women also tend to seek help more, much more often um, than men as well. So I, I think there are reasons why there is this artificial kind of difference. I wonder if socially, too, there there may be an expectation that men will lose their temper and they'll say things they don't mean, but women are supposed to be kind and nurturing. And so if a man fits into the personality type of or the, the, the nine criteria of BPD, we may just say, you know, he's just a mean guy. But if a woman does, we, we say that's not characteristic. Women are not supposed to act like that. And so then the, she may be called out in a different way. That is exactly right. If you had a scenario where you had a person, say, get in a fight with, with their partner, go to a bar, drink a little too much, you know, pick a fight, then jump in the car and speed and get stopped by a cop. If it's a woman and she bursts out into tears and starts talking, the policeman will take her to an emergency room and say she's borderline personality. If it's a man, he'll say he's a sociopath. He's an antisocial personality disorder. Uh, and he'll take him to jail. So there is, I think, very much a social dis- distinction because many of these these characteristics that are defining, such as anger, such as self destructiveness, are seen more uh, more typically a female kind of thing. For a male, it's more antisocial. He's doing it on purpose. As opposed to borderline personality, although they can seem very angry and can really cause a lot of upset in another person. 
you know, if you understand what their background or what they're going through, it becomes understandable. It's, it's, all, it's their way of trying to exist in, in, in a world that's very confusing. Yeah, I mean, I can just stepping into that, like not not knowing who you are, not having any control over your mood, swinging hard from one, like black to white, white to back, just those symptoms are alone to just confuse you and, and detach you from, from reality as well. Yes, and, and that is one of the other defining, uh, one of the nine criteria is in ext- areas of extreme stress, there can be short-term and intermittent and transient episodes of really losing touch with reality, usually a sense of depersonalization or feeling like things aren't real, sometimes really active hallucinations, you know, hearing voices or uh, a sense of paranoia, uh, the people are after me. Usually, uh, and, for all the, and for all the world, it can look like an episode of a s- significant psychotic illness like schizophrenia. The difference, though, is once that stress is gone and they've been able to get some rest and the stress has sort of settled down, it all dissipates. Mm. Is this something that you would be able to see if you were dating someone? You know, you made the joke of, of you know, the, the first spouse or the, the ex-wife. But that means that during the dating period, imagine you didn't see anything. You didn't see any of those characteristics and it wasn't until you got married. Is that the case? Are, 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 are folks ever able to mask it? Or is it that the relationship hasn't become turbulent enough or there hasn't become enough problems in the household for the, for the outburst to arise? Like, would you notice this while you're dating somebody? Not necessarily. I I mean, obviously, dating is a period of getting to know somebody. Mm -hmm. And individuals with BPD can be very sensitive, very intelligent, very empathic, uh, very attractive in a lot of different different ways. You know, the the extreme and unrealistic stereotype of the borderline personality is the old movie from 30 years ago or so, Fatal Attraction. Mm. The Glenn Close character is this lovely, attractive, powerful, interesting woman who, when she senses she's being abandoned, you know, really goes off the deep, the deep mm. end. I, and the classical relationship that is, it begins to be the perfect relationship, but that ends up going asunder is the matching of the borderline woman and the narcissistic men. They just glom together. Because the borderline woman who can be very attractive and such is looking for someone who appears to be powerful. This is a person who's never going to leave me, who's wonderful, who's always going to take care of me and um, protect me from all the, the bad things that have happened in my life. The narcissistic man finds a woman who praises him, who reinforces all of his need for constant idealization. And so that it's perfect in the beginning. But then once things start to get too much and the woman begins to feel too controlled and begins to rebel against it, and the man begins to, to start finding that he, he isn't always going to get praised and she starts picking away at him, then things really uh, blow up. Mm. Yeah, we were actually talking about this prior to this, this conversation. Like, How do people with borderline end up in relationships in the first place when, when they can show up so explosive? And I think one of the things we were talking about is that I don't think that people with full-blown BPD end up with sort of healthy, regulated, you know, non-trauma, thriving people. I think they do end up with people who are also struggling in their own way, right? Well, I think certainly in the beginning, often that's the case. I mean, not not all the time. I mean, I think sometimes uh, because people with borderline personality can be very appealing. 
uh, and intriguing and interesting mm. and certainly can, can, be, can attract a lot of people that if they do attract someone who is healthy and can persevere and can begin to understand the situation. And if, and if the, the, the individual with borderline personality can also begin to recognize what's going on and possibly um, get help with it, that things can you know, certainly work out. But it, it can be a turbulent time for a while. That's, that's certainly true. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine. And particularly too, if, if you have, we're talking about in partnerships, but if a parent has borderline, I can imagine how challenging then that is too for a child who's trying to understand and navigate the world and their own emotions and their own identity and are looking to their caregivers to role model that, how challenging that has to be to be able to witness that and, and how confusing that must be. Well, it's very true. And oftentimes borderline mothers have borderline children because one of the issues that seems to be associated frequently in, in the childhood of people who develop borderline personality is a mothering process that is, ext- is extreme one way or the other. A mothering process that is, for example, so insecure that she won't allow that. She holds the child so close that he's unable to separate at all. Or at the opposite end, one who is so involved in her own stuff or his own stuff, if it's a, a fathering figure, uh, that pushes the child away and isn't able to allow any kind of rapprochement and connection there. So that, that, that kind of mother-child interaction can end up predicting a lot of borderline issues. Uh, we recently spoke to Julie Manano about this organized attachment style. And when I hear you talk about borderline, I'm definitely hearing some parallels. Can you speak to a little bit more if those things either coexist or are they the same thing? Does one exist in the other? Can you speak a little bit about what the attachment style model fits into the borderline personality disorder? Well, I think, as I was saying, the ideal paradigm of Childhood is an attachment that also a lot that also encourages an individuation phase. That a period when the child starts to crawl, starts to walk, there's encouragement to wander off, but also encouragement to come back and get a hug whenever whenever you need to, and um, developing an attachment that's a healthy attachment. And when that's disrupted for a lot of reasons, because of some of the things we've already talked about, or some form of not just neglect, but even abuse, uh, where trust is hindered, uh, where there's physical abuse or sexual abuse, which is common with, with people with BPD. Attachment is always fraught with distrust uh, and confusion, so that um, it's hard to make links and couplings that feel healthy. So, am I right in understanding that people with borderline personality disorder? tend to have disorganized attachment style but but is it the other way around also if you have a disorganized attachment style are you likely to also have borderline personality disorder are they interchangeable well not interchangeable but it certainly can work both ways yes Mm. okay interested in why this is not discussed more often Mm -hmm. you know why why is it i think that there there's a lot of different personality disorders that they're in conversation and i think maybe people use bbt and, and and talk about it in ways that to to self-diagnose or diagnose a partner or or mean boss but why overall do you think that there's some misinformation that exists about BBT? or an ex-wife yes yes exactly or an ex-wife yeah exactly. i think one of the one of the main reasons is is there's tremendous stigma 
uh, attached to, to BPD along with, you know, the stereotypes. And it's kind of understandable, I guess, in ways, because when you think about such people exhibit a lot of drama. I mean, just about any female in a Tennessee, in any Tennessee Williams play has borderline characteristics. I mean, it makes for great drama. So it's in the movies, uh, uh, usually a woman, but it can, certainly can be a man, but usually it is a woman that's portrayed who's impulsive and dramatic and histrionic and usually in ways that are uncontrollable and difficult. So I think there's, there's tremendous stigma about it. And there's also been for many years a feeling that the prognosis was terrible, that there's nothing you can do, that these are, these are people who are just going to continue to be destructive. There's no treatment. There's nothing you can do. They'll never get better. And for a long time, that was the stereotype that was associated with it. Now we know that's not true. We know that over time, 90% or more will significantly improve over long periods of time. I mean, 10 plus years or shorter, depending on a situation, but the vast majority get significantly better. And that wasn't understood until really more recently. I feel like borderline in general is not understood well. I think that's probably why it's not so, you know, for example, with things like depression and anxiety and narcissism, I feel like they those terminologies are popularized and sometimes mistakenly used for, you know, people when they're sad, they'll say I'm depressed. When they're worried, they'll say I'm anxious you know, uh, or I have anxiety. Or, you know, if their partner is selfish, you know, they say they're narcissistic. So a lot of these sort of diagnostic ter- terminology is being popularized but i don't i don't hear bpd as like as sort of like thrown down card as like yes it is um but it's not as much as the others and and my guess is that it's just generally widely not understood well and then it's just stigmatized like you mentioned well i think that's true i think as people understand more about human behavior there's a greater acceptance i think nowadays compared to maybe 80 years ago, the idea of, oh, depression, yeah, that's a disorder. It isn't like pull yourself by bootstraps and quit feeling sorry for yourself like would have been the the feeling 100 years ago. And 50 years ago, someone with a substance abuse problem says, for God's sakes, just stop drinking. What's the problem? It's not a big deal. Instead of recognizing this is addiction as an illness. And I think more recently it's been with obesity. You know, just stop eating. You know, that's, that's all you have to do. You're overweight and you just exercise and eat more, it'll be fine. Not understanding that's a disorder. Well, I think all those things become a little more accepted over time as people understand it better. And there isn't the same understanding about borderline personality. It's still a, a more of a sense of sort of, you know, slap you a couple of times and shape up and quit acting up like, like a big Right. Movie. Calm down. Yeah. yeah calm sure. down. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the treatment that, that folks can seek out? Yes, there is, unlike the cheese and the farmer and the Dell, borderline personality rarely stands alone. There's usually an accompanying disorder. So most people with borderline personality also usually have symptoms of depression, anxiety, many have eating disorders, substance abuse problems. So there are medical treatments for those kinds of symptoms. And even when there isn't depression, some of the antidepressants help in terms of stabilizing some of the impulsivity. And other medicines sometimes are helpful, although there is no specific treatment. But other medicines, additionally, 
such as uh, mood stabilizers and antipsychotic medicines, usually in very small doses, can kind of help even things out. But the primary treatment for BPD is forms of therapy. And that was the other concern until maybe 20 years ago. There really wasn't any organized treatment program. And now there are several that have been shown to be really helpful. Probably the one that's most commonly referred to is uh, dialectical behavioral treatment, uh, DBT, which is a behavioral treatment. It sort of tries to teach skills, how, how to handle things. Another one that's been shown to be really useful is mentalization-based treatment, which has to do with trying to mentalize about why they're feeling what they're feeling, as well as trying to understand more what the other person in the environment at the time, what their reactions are, trying to mentalize, trying to think about it. Another uh, accepted form is transference-focused therapy that has to do with, which is more of a psychoanalytic uh, procedure where the relationships are focused on, and it starts with the relationship with the therapist himself or herself, and how that extends to other kinds of relationships. There's schema-focused therapy. All of these have been shown to be really helpful, but there isn't one size fits all. You really have to individualize. Some people do much better with the behavioral kind of system, so something like DBT would be really good. Others would do better with more of a psychoanalytic-type program. And so it becomes a matter of finding what kind of therapy treatment would be best for the individual. What about the environment? So, and I would say environment and also the type of relationships that maybe people with BBT might find easier than than not. So, for example, on this show, we talk a lot about monogamy and non-monogamy or kind of as relationship options. Do you have any idea of sort of what kind of relationships, what kind of environments that can support that that treatment versus what can maybe trigger it or exacerbate it? Because there is constant questioning of oneself and such, there is a tendency to, have to kind of be traveling around a lot, to be uncertain about relationships. So there often is a history of promiscuity. There's a history of even gender confusion in terms of still trying to figure out who they are sexually as well as socially. After a period of time, ideally, there begins, if there can find some consistency, then some, something can, can develop. But that can take, that can take a period of time. So that often it, is, it takes a while to develop some more consistent and reliable relationships with reliable people. Sometimes the choices of people are um, poor, either because they're looking, the person's looking more for adventure, or maybe they're even looking to be self-destructive. So they, they're purposely going after people that they know are going to be harmful. Um, and that's something you, you see a lot too, is, you know, again, the stereotype of the woman who keeps going back to her partner who keeps beating her and keeps abusing her, but I love him. No, and you keep going back and you keep getting beaten up like he's like it's gonna like it's not gonna happen again. Um it's kind of hard to find something that's consistent like that. Yeah, it sounds rough. It sounds like a rough ride. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> yeah. And and also it sounds like the there's a journey towards getting better because to your point, like I imagine you have to work with someone and figure out is it bipolar? Is it depression? Is it borderline personality? Is it is it this? Is it that? That there there's so many kind of 
what sounds like is it adolescence <laughs> right there's some overlapping things that that you really need to start peeling apart and figuring out what particular treatment is going to work is it important to be able to nail down for example if it's borderline personality is it important for that diagnosis to be determined or if someone is for example misdiagnosed or with bipolar and depression and anxiety or something else will those treatments still support someone who really does have borderline? Or is it really important to be able to find what exactly is the cause? I think it is really important to try to distinguish because what happens is one disorder can camouflage the other. I mean, if someone with borderline personality also has an eating disorder, they're going to go to an eating disorder unit usually, and they're going to focus on that And they may get frustrated because the person doesn't seem to be responding the way that most people do. And and that's usually a sign that that things are more complicated. Treating somebody who whose chief complaint is is depression and doesn't seem to respond, still seems acting out, and the doctor's going through all sorts of antidepressants and things and they don't seem to be getting better, that often suggests they're missing something because The other disorder is camouflaging that there's a personality disorder here, too. And if you don't address it, you don't start saying, you know, we've got to start looking at this stuff, too. It isn't just going to be antidepressants and and getting better rest and uh, some of the usual kind of approaches. We have to look at what's going on characterologically, too. And that often gets covered up. Oftentimes, when there is a failure to improve the way that one expects, um, you begin to start thinking about there's something underlying here as well that we haven't seen yet. I have one quick question about the diagnosis. Is something like borderline on a spectrum or is it an on-off thing? So I know, for for example, something like bipolar, it's like on or off, right? You either have it and you're having manic and, and depressive episodes, but something like, you know, I don't know, something like anxiety is on a, somewhat on a spectrum, right? Some people have really severe anxiety and some people have it less severe. Is it like that with borderline or are you just like you have borderline and you're full-blown experience at all times? Well, the way we define these disorders is in, in a categorical way. There's mm-hmm. so many symptoms. If you have those symptoms, you got it. If mm-hmm. you lose one of them, you ain't got it anymore. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. So in that sense, it, it's really artificial. Mm-hmm. But realistically, mm-hmm. it is on a dimensional more level. And actually, the DSM, the way we define it, is, is starting to evolve to more. And we currently are in DSM-5. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that DSM-6 is going to begin defining it different. Because there is, as all things, there really is a spectrum along the line of some people function at a more primitive level much more than others. And I think, you know, when when does depression not be, or, you know, grief not be quite what it is? So there, so there really, realistically, there really are degrees of these disorders. And of course, bipolar disorder, you have periods of mania, you have periods of depression, and then you have periods where it's neither one. Mm. And one of the distinctions between bipolar and borderline is that borderline, you're always whipsawed back and forth. There, uh, there usually is, is one or the other, and it's mm. going from one to the other as opposed to these periods of sort of quiescence. Mm. Okay. All right. Okay. So what about people with loved, loved ones who have BPD, either family, uh, parents, or they find themselves in a relationship, you know, it started great. Um, and, you know, 
a few months in, they're now discovering the other person is struggling for BPD. What can they do? Is it, is it like just, you know, exit through the gift shop? Or if you can, you can't really do that with, with, you know, with, with, with family. Or w- what can they do to one, be well, them- like stay well themselves, and two, to try to support the relationship? Well, those are the kinds of things that really I described in my books in terms of communication systems. I think understanding that, it, that it's a disorder and persevering, you know, committing to sort of stay in is uh, because they're always going to be tested. I know you're going to leave me. I know you're going to leave me. I know you're going to leave me. Mm-hmm. And being able to kind of communicate that is important. But I think the communication system, at least what I found to be helpful that that I describe in, in more detail in the in the books is being able to convey in communication three primary areas. One of support. It's an I statement that says I'm here. I, you know, I care about you. I want to be with you. An empathy statement that accepts that you're you're suffering, and I understand that this is hard for you. And then a truth statement. That's what I call set. The truth statement is just reality. Is we got to set some limits. You know, there's only so much I can do. And and when you do this, there are there are consequences. If you cut your wrist, I'm gonna take you to the hospital. I know you don't want me to take you to the hospital, but it you know, it's again it's a damned if you do and damned if you don't. Mm-hmm. I gotta do what is a result of your behavior. And so it's sort of balancing the care the the I statement, the you statement, mm-hmm. and the reality statement that will be tested over time. In your books, so the three of uh, I Hate You, Don't Leave Me, Sometimes I Act Crazy, and um, Talking to a Loved One with Borderline Personality Disorder, you, via your books, kind of share that journey of first understanding it, then living with it, and then living with someone who has it. Are there areas that you feel like you want to continue to explore? Is there another book in the works, if you will? Are there there pieces of the borderline personality story and journey that you think are left to be explored? I think what will be coming next, I don't know about more books, but um, I think what what we're beginning to understand more is some of the neurology, the biology of it all, and some of the interactions um, in the brain that seem to be associated with that. And if we can understand a little bit more about how the, how the brain works and, and the connection between mind and brain mm-hmm. and, and the physiology, as well as how that's impacted by what's going on in life, I think that's where the exciting areas are going to be in all of medicine, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely more research that's done on trauma. And I think at the root of a lot of these personality disorders and mood disorders, there's trauma. And I think there's a lot of neurological, biological research being done in kind of what happens to the brain when it experiences trauma, both developmentally or as an adult, right? And I think a lot of new information is coming from that. And I imagine you talked about at the beginning of this conversation that borderline tends to happen you know, half genetically and half environmentally, often around abuse or neglect in early years, which I, I assume is kind of experiences trauma, right? And it feels like a lot of this is trauma, you know, in the context of, you know, personality disorders is person- borderline. Trauma in the context of attachment is disorganized. Trauma in the context of attention is ADHD. There seems to be these like correlations where you start with trauma and depending on which area that you're you're discussing, we just seem to give it different names. Um, but at the root of it all, it just seems to be trauma and especially developmental trauma. Does that sound right to you? 
Yes, I, I think I think we're all all humans have have certain predispositions and vulnerabilities that may be expressed depending on where the environmental issues are, and it may be expressed as major depressive. It may may be expressed as um, ulcers. It may be expressed as some autoimmune disease or inflammatory mm-hmm. disease. So many disorders seem to be really autoimmune in that sense. That there's always some sort of inflammatory problem. Not always. Frequently, there appears to be discovered some inflammatory process in when the body isn't working the way it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, I think all this combination kind of is is extant in all of uh, uh, functioning <laughs> humans. Mm. Sure. Yeah. No. And that that makes sense. And I, I am super excited about this new research and what that tells us and what are some of the things that we can do to heal from some of these traumas and maybe even sort of, you know, figure out how we heal from these particular disorders as well. So super interesting. I appreciate the conversation today. I think you, I mean, certainly via the books, you give us some resources, but I think also via this dialogue have been able to connect the dots between some of what people may be feeling and experiencing within their bodies or within their relationships. And I think the biggest thing that I'm walking away with is I I, I came in with that assumption that you shared early on, that myth of it is what it is and there's not much that can be done and recognizing now that there are ways and which relationships and individuals can get better, I think is really hopeful. Thank you. Much appreciation. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. I enjoyed being with you. You can find Dr. Gerald Kreisman's books on borderline personality disorder on our reading list at wearecuriousfoxes.com backslash reading list. On our website, you'll also be able to find blog posts and past episodes that can help you indulge your curiosity around love, sex, and relationships. You can visit us at wearecuriousfoxes.com. If you want to weigh in on this topic or connect with other Foxy listeners, head to Facebook and join our Facebook group at We Are Curious Foxes. If you found this episode to be interesting or helpful, please share our podcast with a friend, quickly rate the show, leave a comment, and subscribe on Apple Podcast or follow us on Spotify or Stitcher. To support the show, join us on Patreon at We Are Curious Foxes, where you can find mini episodes, podcast extras that couldn't make it to the show, and over 50 videos from educator-led workshops. And finally, let us know that you're listening by sharing a comment, story, or question. You can email us or send us a voice memo to listening at wearecuriousfoxes.com. This episode is produced by Effie Blue and Jacqueline Misler with help from Yamur Arkishi. Our editor is Nina Pollock, whose personality is in perfect sync with ours. Our intro music is composed by Dev Saha. We are so grateful for their work and we're grateful to you for listening. As always, Stay curious, friends. Curious Fox podcast is not and will never be the final word on any topic. We solely aim to encourage curiosity and provide a space for exploration through connection and story. We encourage you to listen with an open and curious mind and we'll look forward to your feedback. Stay curious, friends. Stay curious. 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 Stay curious.